Well, this morning, you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. We're picking up where we left off in our three-part series on the love of God. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question. How do you get yourself to love, to feel love for something or someone? I've, I've used this illustration before, but as many of you know, I don't love mushrooms. I don't. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. They're fungus, which is decay, which is part of the fall. Uh, that'd be one reason. Um, but my precious wife loves them. Alyssa loves mushrooms. So I have grown to at least tolerate them in most recent years. I, 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 I can eat mushrooms without any kind of problem. But I don't think I'll ever love them the way she does. Now, with foods, that's actually very simple. That's actually a simple thing. But what about with people? Have you ever had someone in your life who's hard to love? Someone who's difficult for you to feel warm-hearted affection for? Someone who was tough for you to interact with and you knew that loving them was a struggle or maybe even someone who's hurt you, someone who's an enemy? It's hard. It's hard to get your feelings to move, isn't it? It's incredibly difficult. And even beyond that, how do you make yourself love God? How do you make yourself love someone you've never seen? And I want us to think through this issue because love is so important. In fact, in many ways, love is the center of the Christian life. In John 14, 15, Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now notice, it's got a logical structure to it. It's an if-then statement. He says, if you love me, then you will Love for Christ will cause us to obey Christ. That's what happens in our hearts. And of course, the opposite is true. If we don't love Christ, we won't obey Him. And so the greatest question for you and for me, for all of our sanctification is this, how? How do I get my heart to love Jesus? How do I do it? Because if I love Him, I'll obey Him. And that's what John answers for us in this morning's verse. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. He says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, to get at what John is saying here and just how crucial it is, we need to start by understanding the context of the verse. And this is point one this morning, in the context Now, the context of any verse is always crucial, and normally we do a how-does-it-fit section, how it fits into the overarching flow of John's argument, but we did that last week with these three verses, verses 9 through 11. And we saw in verse 9 that this section of 1 John 4 is here to convince us that God is love. That's what he's convincing us of. He wants you to walk away saying, I know that God is love, and I know what that love does for me in my heart. In fact, look at verse 9 with me and look what he says. He says, By this, the love of God was manifested or displayed in us that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. God is love, and his love is put on display through the sending of Jesus, his one unique Son, into the world so that we sinners might live through him. That's how God displays his love for us. The death and resurrection of Christ is the means by which God has proven his love for his people. 
But what John does now is move from this display of the love of God to the effect of the love of God. That's what's happening in verse 10. And this link between displaying and working is crucial. It's crucial. It isn't just that God displays his love. It's also that he causes that love to work in his people and to produce what we cannot create in ourselves. It creates a love for him and from that, a love for others. So I want to take the verse apart piece by piece, and we'll start with point two, love created. If you just read the verse, it's not super complex, actually. The Greek in 1 John is actually the easiest Greek in the entire New Testament. Hold on, I'm going to push this down. Sorry. I look over at this side and I can't see Chris. (laughs) There you go. Good. Um, The Greek in, in 1 John is actually very simple. It's not very complex. Uh, You can read it very simply, but uh, one author said it's like an Olympic swimming pool. It's very clear, but very deep. Uh, And in 1 John 4.10, it's simple to understand. Uh, But the complexity of ideas and how they work together is is very, very difficult. And so we want to take each piece and understand how it fits together. So this brings us to point A, love. Love. Now, in the first phrase of the verse, he says, in this is love. Anytime John uses that word this, he's pointing forward. He wants us to look forward in the verse. And so he's going to argue for us where love comes from. But we have to start by asking ourselves, what love is John talking about here? When he says, in this is love, what is the love that he's referencing? Now, it could be God's love for us, right? He could say, in this is love, that God loves you. And that would make sense. In fact, he said that before. The problem is that doesn't fit in the context because of the next phrase. Notice what he says in verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God. So John is talking about something that interacts with us more than just a passive receiving. So he says, in this is love. So it must include something about our hearts loving. It must. So it could be our love for God, right? If it's not God's love for us, maybe it's our love for God. But the problem is that he totally eliminates that option. Look again in the verse. He says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So it isn't our love for God exclusively either. So what is the love that John is talking about here? Well, it has to be related to God's love for us, and it has to be related to our love for God. So what is that? The answer is that John is explaining where all Christian love comes from. In this is love. All love that exists in the heart of a believer has a source. It is our love for God, our love for others, and God's love for us. The love relationships that exist, exist from this source. All true, genuine love that has ever arisen in your heart as a believer for God and others, and the love relationship that you have with God is not from you. None of that is from you. And that is what John is describing here. When he says, in this is love, all love, all true Christian love has a source. So what is the source? And this is point B, God is author. Now, John says something fascinating here. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God. This is amazing. He actually eliminates all of our ability. We can't love God. He says, you cannot do this on your own. And and what's amazing is that he actually freely acknowledges that he can't love God either. Notice the verse. He says, in this is love, not that we love God. He includes himself with you. He says, guys, we don't love God. We can't do this. Why? Because in our flesh, we don't love. We don't love. 
We might act like we love. We might fake love, but we don't actually love. At our core, apart from Christ, we are selfish people, aren't we? You know this about yourselves, don't you? You take Jesus out of your life, you are a selfish, evil person. You don't love. Paul says it in Romans 1, 28 through 32. He lists a long list of sins. And he says, among those sins, unbelievers are haters of God. They hate God. They might not say, I hate God, but they do. And he also says in Titus 3, 3, for we too once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. And then he says this, hateful and hating one another. So not only do unbelievers hate God, but they hate each other. There is no true love apart from Christ. Now you might say, well, unbelievers can have some love, right? Like the love of a mother to her child. And in a sense, that's true. But it's not love in the most complete sense. Those types of love are the fruit of common grace from God to the unbeliever. And they are real in a sense, but they're still rooted in forms of selfishness. There's a, there's a root of selfishness underneath even those common grace types of love. But true Christian love is always focused on others. It's always pointed at others. So John says, in this is love. It's not from us. We cannot manufacture love. You cannot manufacture love in your heart. You can't. But he tells us the source of all love. And it's got to be God. Just look again at the verse. Again, it's simple. In this is love, not that we love God, but what? That he loved us. The source of all love in the Christian's heart, all love relationship roots in the person of God and his love for us. He is the one who creates and generates love in the hearts of believers. Now, in a sense, that should be like wildly relieving because you might say to yourself, I've tried to love God, but I struggle to love God. I can't the way that I should. Well, that's relieving to be able to say, well, I can't do this. Well, of course I can't do this because it's impossible for me. God has to do this in me, right? Which, is, which should be like very comforting and relieving for you in one sense. But it should also be a little frustrating. Think about what he's done here. God has commanded us. The first and greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, you can't do it. <laughs> that's, that's like the incredibly frustrating thing to say. That's like instructing your kids to fly to the moon. They can't do it. It's impossible. We cannot generate it because we are broken. And the only way that true love will grow in our hearts is through him working in his love for us. So this is our problem. We can't do what we're commanded to do it, what we're commanded to do, but we must do it. And this brings us to point three, the proof and the power. The proof and the power. Now again, in this verse, we have another proof statement and then something that's more than a proof statement. It goes beyond just the proof. John is linking this proof of God's love with the power of that love. And look at point A with me, love proven through propitiation. Love proven through propitiation. Now, if you, if you just take verse 9 and verse 10 and you follow them in parallel construction, what is John doing here? 
In verse 9, he says, here's how you see the display of God's love made manifest. How do you see God's love made manifest? Well, in the fact that he sent his son, his unique son, into the world so that we would live through him. That's what he's saying. He tells us that we have life in him because Jesus came into the world. And the same concept is actually in verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent, again, his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the concept is very similar to verse 9. So we have to understand what he's saying specifically here. What does it mean to be a propitiation? That's a $10 word, a $10 theological Christian word, right? Uh, That's not a word we use in common language. What is a propitiation? It's an appeasement for wrath. It's an appeasement for wrath. All sin leads to judgment, right? All sin leads to judgment. God has wrath, anger for all sin. And I want to show you this. Look at, look at Romans chapter 1 with me. Turn back there. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18 with me. <clears throat> he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Same word, revealed, right? The love of God is displayed through Christ. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is Paul saying? He's saying God is angry at every sin that has ever happened in the history of the world. Not a little angry. He's furious. Not in sinful ways. In just, holy, righteous ways. God hates sin. And that sin deserves punishment. And so he's angry. He's angry because it's ultimately a sin against him and his holiness and his perfections. And that wrath is expressed most fully in hell. Hell is a place where God's wrath is poured out on the unrighteous forever because they have sinned against him. And we need to pause here. I know all of us know we're sinners. It's easy to say that, right? I'm a sinner. But every sin, listen to this, every sin you've ever done in your entire life, sins you've long since forgotten, sins that you thought were just trifling little small sins, all the big sins you don't want anyone to know about, every sin you've ever committed in your entire life deserves the eternal wrath of God forever forever. Now just let that sink in to your soul for a minute. Every time you've ever done something evil outwardly, every evil word you've ever said, every evil thought that you've ever had crossed through your mind, even every evil motivation of your soul, every one of those things deserves hell forever. If you had lived a perfect life, your entire life, 
and you had one proud thought, you'd go to hell forever. And hell isn't hyperbole. It's not a game. It's a permanent place of judgment for the unrighteous. Think of this. Think of the emperor Nero. Nero died 2,000 years ago. And when he died, he went immediately to hell. And he has been suffering there under the rightful justice and wrath of God for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. No interruption, no break. 2,000 years. And 2,000 years from now, he will still be suffering in hell. And those 4,000 years of suffering in hell have not earned him one moment of relief. In fact, those 4,000 years of hell have collapsed down into nothing because he's just beginning again. And that will never end. And that is what you deserve. That's what I deserve for every sin, which is horrifying because all of us have sinned. But God doesn't leave us there. Look at chapter three. Gus read this for us this morning and he said, this is one of my favorite verses and it is because that's true about me. It would be just and right for him to send us all to hell, but he creates a way for us to have righteousness and life. And this is amazing and you know it, right? You know it, but we forget it. Familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? But it's amazing what he does here. Look at Romans chapter three and verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then what happens? He says, we have been justified as a gift, free gift, justified. What does that mean? What does justified mean? It means to declare someone righteous. It's to give them righteousness. He says, you've been justified as a gift by his grace. How? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus redeemed you from that hell so that you can have righteousness and life in him. That's what Christ has done. And then he says this, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Same word. What's he saying? How is it fair that God takes my hell removes it and takes me to heaven. It's not right because I did the sin. It's not fair. It's not fair. And what God does is he publicly displays Christ as what? The propitiation. What does that mean? It means that God takes my wrath that I rightfully deserve off of me and he places it on Jesus and all that wrath gets poured out on Christ. All of it's done. And how do we know the wrath has been paid? Look at the verse again, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. How? In his blood. Jesus shed his blood so that it's proven publicly that it's fair. It's fair. He can do this. He has the right to give me mercy for my sin. And then look at verse 26. He says, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness, God is righteous in giving me 
the righteousness of Christ. He's righteous in placing my sin on Christ. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just, listen to this verse, amazing, that he would be righteous. He would still maintain his personal righteousness and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's righteous and he grants righteousness and it's totally fair because all of the wrath was poured out on Christ. So if anything in the world were to prove the love of God for us, it would be that he conceived of a system where the wrath that you have earned would be poured out on his unique son, Jesus, sent into the world as the atoning propitiatory sacrifice and that his righteousness would be given to us so that we could be with God forever. That's the most loving thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And that's what God did. And he did it while maintaining his holiness. It's the, it's the most beautiful thing that's ever happened in the world. And it's the most love-proving thing that could have ever been shown in the history of the world. Nothing else can show or prove to you that God loves you in any more profound way than that reality. But it isn't just the proof in 1 John 4. Turn back there with me. There's more here, and this is point B. Atonement, life, and love. Now again, we want to connect 9 and 10 in the key words there. We're told that Jesus was sent so that we might have life, that we might have life in him. And in verse 10, we're told that he was sent as a propitiation, the wrath bearer, the, uh, the appeaser of God's wrath for our sins. And the connection makes sense, right? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. It's not just wrath, it's death. It's eternal death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So our wrath that would have resulted in our eternal death is now put on Christ and we are receiving life from him, eternal life from him. And it proves the love of Christ for us, which is amazing. But it ups the ante here, doesn't it? It ups the ante. It pushes it one step further. Because what John says at the beginning of the verse 10 links with what he says at the end of verse 10. Notice this. In this is love. What's he doing? He's telling us that there's a source. This is where love comes from. Love is from here. In this is love. This is where love is going to happen. And he says it's not that we love God, but that he loved us. This is how love takes place. In the wrath-appeasing death of Christ that took our eternal death off of us onto Christ, God not only proves his love, but he generates love. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Now, how does that work? How does that work? We've already seen it. It's not because us. It's not because we do something. It doesn't work because we work hard to love God. That's not what happens in our hearts. The first cause of love in us is God. The thing that causes us to love at all is God. And we know that. John says this more succinctly in verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. That's where he's headed. We love because he first loves us. And that's both to him and to others. But in verse 10, he shows us this. God's love for you empowers you to love like he loves. 
How does that work? I want you to think about this for a minute. God's love for you empowers you to love the way God loves. All the love that will ever come out of you ever as a Christian, for any Christian or for God, is entirely 100% a byproduct. You generated none of it. None. We do not act on our own accord. God creates love in us. Which means that the source of all change in your life, hear me, this is so important. Any here, anyone here want to change? You want to be different? I would like to be a different person than I am. The source of all change in your life is rooted in the love of God and the fact, even more specifically, that he sent his son to take your wrath off of you and to give you his righteousness. That's so important. Your power for growth in holiness, your power to fight sin is linked directly to the love of God for you proven at the cross. That link is made explicit here. It cannot get more serious than this. Your entire Christian life, any change you want to see, any sin you're fighting, any hope for any heart movement inside of you at all, comes from this verse. That's stunning. You want to love God more? Here's how to do it. You want to love, love other people more? Here's how to do it. You want to grow and fight lust or envy or anxiety or bitterness or malice? How do you do it? And he says, here, this is the way. It's, the, to me, the most important verse in the Bible. Because it shakes me and says, I can't do this. I can't generate love. I can't make myself love God. I can't make myself love people. I can't make myself hate sin. I want to, but I can't. But instead of leaving me there, God comes and he says, I can. I can do this for you. I can change you. I can make you love. I can give you a love for me. I can give you a love for others. John, come to me and I will give you the power that you do not have in yourself. And that's amazing. That's what he's doing. He's changing you. God is changing you and me to be more like him, to love the way that he loves through, and this, is, this link is explicit, directly through the cross. Now you might say, wait a minute. There's lots of other texts that talk about obedience, John. And they don't all mention love. What about things like glory or effort? What about those things? And the answer is yes. <laughs> those things are true too. And I want to show you this. This is point four. Love and light. Love and light. And we started about how you get yourself to love something that you don't love. And we talked about how impossible that is, right? It's impossible for me to love mushrooms. I can tolerate them. I cannot love them. We can't change our own hearts, our own loves. But what we've seen is that God love, God's love actually changes us. It creates love in us. But is that, where, is that what the whole Bible teaches? That's the question, right? I think the answer is yes. This is point A here. 
I want to show you another passage that talks about change in us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. If you've been to our church any length of time, we've gone to this verse a bunch. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Just turn there. Paul says this, he says, but we all, so Paul himself included, right, all Christians, he says, with unveiled face, our, our, the veil's been lifted, we're looking at something, what are we looking at? Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We're looking at the glory of God. That's what we're seeing, okay? Look at the verse. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorphosed, changed, how are we being changed? Into the same image, the image that we're looking at, the image of God, from one degree of glory to the next, he says. This is from the Spirit. You say, well, there's nothing in there about love. He says, I'm being changed by looking at the glory of God, and that glory is moving me to be more and more glorious like he is. Where's love, John? Paul actually tells us, look down in chapter four, verse four, look what he says. In whose case... Now, he's talking about people who are perishing in verse 3. And let's just read verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, people who don't know Christ, in whose case the God of this world, listen, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see, same language as 318, the light of the what? Of the what? Say it loud gospel, the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Is love in that verse? What is the gospel? True, <laughs> that God loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the gospel. That's love. Now, that at least partially answers our question, right? What Paul says is that the light of God's glory in the gospel is the thing that's changing me. And John says, in this is love, not that I love God, but that he loved me and sent his son, gospel, to be the propitiation for my sins. So light in the glory of God that you see in your heart when you worship Christ and love, are John and Paul saying different things? No, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Light and love and glory are one thing in God. What is it? It's that he loves us. It's the gospel. It's the good news of him sending his son into the world for sinners like us. When we believe that God loves us in the gospel, it is the very clear manifestation of the love of God for us. And it is also us seeing the glory of God. Those are one thing. They're not different things. I want to show you another text. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Just to convince you of this. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at 
Look at verse 3. He says, blessed be the God. So he's blessing God. He's thanking God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he says, God chose you before the world ever was, so that in eternity future, you would be holy and blameless in his presence forever. So here's all of human history, all of time and eternity, and God is like plucking you out and putting you into heaven already. And then look what he says. In love, so the root, right, the root of what he does here, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. What did he do? He made you a child of God. Why? Because he loves you. And then look at verse 6. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. What, what was God doing in choosing you and setting his love on you? He was causing you to see His glory, the glory of His grace to you, that He would set His love on you and not on somebody else, that He would care for you and that He would send His Son for you. In fact, all of human history is derived or born out so that we can see the glory of God's love. So, we see the glory of God's love. The only way for us to see the glory of God's love specifically is through the cross of Christ and what He's done for us. And when we see the glory of His love for us, what happens? It produces in us a love that only God can produce. That's what John's arguing for us. And Paul argues the same thing. Same thing. Those are, those are equal things. Paul, John, the whole New Testament argues for this. Look at the love of God for you. See His glory. Understand what that means for you. Let it fill your heart and then move, be moved by that to love him and to love other people. And this brings us to our final point here, and this is point B, faith, love, and change. I asked earlier, does anyone want to change? Any sin you're fighting? Any struggle you're having in your life? No, we're all solid now? <laughs> Heaven on earth here at FBC. No, all of us are trying to change. I need to change. So are you trying to fight some sin? God has given you the power to fight that. You can change. And the love of God, or we could even say the glories of God's love, create love in us. That's what God is doing inside of us. Now we have to ask how. How does the love of God create love in me? And the answer is faith. It's very simple, actually. It's faith. If we don't believe that God loves us, we will find ourselves with no power. Why? Because we're living in fear. We are. But what John is saying is that if we believe that God loves us, even though we're horrible sinners who deserve wrath forever, if we believe that God loves us and that He has sent His Son to take the sin and wrath off of us and to give us life, it fills us with joy as we trust in Him. It fills us with joy as we trust in Him. And we respond by loving Him, the one who loved us first. Now, if you're here and you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You do. You felt it at some point, 
Maybe not right now, but you felt it at some point. Maybe it was the moment you got saved and you believed that Jesus loved you and that he died for your sin and your heart flooded with the love of God for you and you knew it. It was amazing. But if you're here and you don't know Christ, this is like a foreign language to you. Maybe you've mentally assented to the truths of the gospel, but your heart has never truly known the love of Christ and you're still living without that. John is talking about inside of you feeling the reality that God loves you. And when we believe these things, we respond by loving Him. Now just, just think about what He does for us in that. All of a sudden, we have a new love for God that is not generated by anything in me whatsoever. <laughs> It actually has nothing to do with me. It's generated by God who's now putting it into me. Two super important things happen. First thing is, God gets all the glory for any love that comes out of me ever, right? Because I'm a hateful, hating person apart from Christ, and now I have this love motivating engine inside of me moving all the time, and it's not from me. I love, but God gets all the glory for anything I do that's righteous, I can actually love. And when I love, people are like, oh, you're so loving. And what do you say back? No, I'm not. I'm a hateful, hateful person. God loves me. And if anything comes out of me that's good, it's God. God gets all the glory. And second, what happens is God gives you, effectively, all his power to change. He plugs you into like a thermonuclear generator of power to be more like him. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. What has God done? He's produced love in us, hasn't he? Now we love him. Not because of us, but because of him. Because he loves us. I, I, I love him. It's not something I generated, it's something I see. By faith. Now we have all the power we need to choose righteousness, not from us, but from him. And the root of all that is love in my life comes from him. I receive and then I push out. Now change happens, right? Our hearts move almost against our will. We're moved to love. We joyfully concur with the law of God in our inner man. That's Paul's language. We want to do the things that God commands for us. We begin to pursue righteousness. Why? Because we know ourselves loved and what comes out of us is love. Love for God and love for others. And in those two, what do we do? We obey all the law and the prophets. So what do we do with this? Well, next week, what we're going to do is take this idea, that thermonuclear generator of power, and we're going to try to plug it into some sins maybe that you're struggling with. But just specifically this week, if you're struggling with some sin, I, I don't know what you're struggling with, all of you, but if you're struggling to stop sinning in some way, laziness, apathy, self-righteousness, anger, anxiety, bitterness, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we can try hard to change, but it's not going to work. It won't work. It won't work because we don't actually love righteousness. When we're sinning, we're loving ourselves. And we're just fighting a losing battle. So what do we do? 
This is so important. The first thing we do is what? We admit our sins. We confess to God. We come to Him. We say, Lord, I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm envious. I'm apathetic. I'm lazy. Lord, I'm sinning against you. And then what do we do? We remember, right? What do we remember? We remember that Jesus died for our sins, that we are totally forgiven, and that God loves us. We trust that truth. We trust that reality. We believe that he's with us, that he loves us. We see the love of God for us. And we turn from our sin because he's better. He's better than whatever sin we're committing. And then we thank God for his work in us. This is why this is the most important verse to me in all of sanctification. How do I get myself to love God? I don't. I can't. He does. He does what I could never do in sending his son to take my wrath off of me and give me his righteousness. So if you want to grow, this is how to grow. Set your heart and mind on the cross of Christ. That's why the the gospel primer is such a helpful book. (laughs) It's not because it's better than Scripture, right? Scripture is the best. But the gospel primer is like a syringe full of gospel speed. (laughs) I know that sounds bad. (laughs) But this is so important. It's a syringe full of gospel power. And when you read the gospel, what is it doing? It's reminding you. It's reminding you. It's God telling you, I love you. I love you. My affection is for you. That's what it's doing. And in that package, what it's doing is showing us the glory of God, that he would love us as sinners the way we are. And the more we see and believe that truth, the more more we're moved to act. And the more we glorify Him and what we do. That's, that's why it works. In fact, that's why all of Scripture works. And that's why God gets all the glory for anything that happens to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the power that you grant us in the love of Christ. Lord, it's power that we cannot even begin to understand. Lord, power to love like you love. Lord, to love in ways that we can never generate. Lord, it's so easy to doubt ourselves, to doubt our own salvation even at times because we don't love the way that we should. But Lord, you brush all of that aside, reminding us that we're dust, but that love is not in us loving you, but in you loving us. And Lord, if we ever doubt that you love us, we have the greatest display that we could ever possibly have, that you sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, what a joy it is to know him. And Lord, what an immense proof, an infinite proof that you love us. Lord, that you would make us known to Christ, that we would know him, that we would see your glory in your love for us. Lord, we know that forever and ever we will worship you because 
He was slain and he purchased for himself people. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Lord, you've brought us into your presence to see you and to know you. Lord, I pray for us as a church, pray for my own heart, but for all of us, Lord, that we would know more deeply your love for us. Lord, that we would stare, in a sense, with the eyes of our hearts at the cross of Christ. Lord, we have ample reason to look at the cross because we're all sinners. We see it daily. Lord, that we would see in his death, his propitiatory death, that you love us, that wrath is gone, that there's no condemnation for us in Christ, and that ultimately, Lord, that you have an affection for us that will never end. Lord, we bless you for your mercy and your kindness to us in him. Lord, I pray that you would move in us to glorify him by trusting him and then by loving like he loves. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.